Welcome to ParCast Presents the Best of 2019. We have for you the most requested episodes of Espionage from this year. For more great episodes you may have missed, subscribe to Espionage. Listen free on Spotify and anywhere you listen to podcasts. October 1986. Rick Ames was in Rome living the good life. His suits were bespoke, bought with an endless influx of Soviet money. His days were lazy, punctuated by boozy meals and endless stacks of documents. Documents perfect for packing up and handing to the KGB. But Rick was anxious. He was shadowed by guilt and fear. Swilling back Italian wine and shots of vodka like he was tonight was no light-hearted European game. It was a coping mechanism and an ineffective one. The fear lingered. And he was angry. His loyalties were with the KGB now. He'd relied on them to keep him safe. That was what he got in exchange for the reams of classified documents he'd been smuggling the Soviets for more than a year. That and the money. They weren't keeping their side of the bargain. Word had spread through cryptic reports and hall gossip. Soviet double agents were disappearing and dying left and right, and Rick knew exactly what was behind the disaster. His betrayal. There was no way the CIA could miss this. They'd find him out. The KGB should have been more careful, more subtle. It should have left more of the double agents in the field, used them to pass along false information to the CIA. Killing them all? That was a problem. It jeopardized Rick. It was time to go meet his spy master. Time to demand an explanation for the reckless way the Soviets were endangering him and to beg the KGB to keep the CIA off his tracks. This is Espionage, the ParCast original exploring the missions behind the world's most incredible spies and what brought their covert operations into the public eye. Throughout this show, we'll explore real-world spy tactics required to impersonate, exploit, and infiltrate the most confidential places in the world. I'm Carter Roy. This is our second and final episode on Aldrich Ames, CIA expert in Soviet intelligence turned KGB double agent. In June 1985, Aldrich Rick Ames handed the KGB information betraying every Soviet double agent working for the CIA. He stole more classified information than any other double agent in history and made enormous sums of money doing it. Last week, we followed Rick as he transformed from unimpressive CIA man stuck in the middle ranks of the agency to the KGB's most valuable asset. This week, we'll learn about the slow downfall of Rick's mission, the convoluted CIA and FBI investigations that quietly menaced him, and the permanent impact the Rick Ames case had on the role and power of the CIA. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. 
reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you are listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. In early 1986, the leaders of the CIA realized they had a problem. There was a leak. But the agency was notoriously loath to consider a human mole. It was an old boys club, full of chums from the Ivy League whose mothers lunched together at the Cosmopolitan Club. Poking around in their colleagues' business was deeply distasteful. And why should they? The thought that one of their own would betray them was almost unthinkable. So they spent the winter of 1986 testing for a technical leak, a bug, wiretap, or broken code. They found nothing. Come spring, they put their in-house investigator on the job. After several months, he produced a circuitous, inconclusive report. Their previous mole, Edward Lee Howard, may have betrayed some of the lost agents. And maybe the investigator suggested the rest had fallen prey to chance, to small errors that multiplied to produce disaster. Through a quiet summer with no new double agents arrested, that seemed possible. The leaders of the CIA, barons as they were called, cautiously allowed themselves to hope it was true. In this atmosphere of tense calm, in July 1986, Rick Ames flew out to Rome. His job there was straightforward. Find and recruit foreign agents willing to work for the CIA. Soviets, Eastern Europeans, North Koreans, anyone he could get. That was his mission for the CIA. But he had a second job on his hands, just as he'd had in Washington. One of the first things he did when he arrived in Rome was to clear a recruitment effort with the Rome station chief. Rick won approval to wine and dine one Alexei Krenkov of the Soviet Ministry of Foreign Affairs. As far as the CIA knew, Rick would be sounding out Krenkov as a possible double agent. In reality, Krenkov was his cutout. Rick would use him to pass information to the KGB. Krenkov would give Rick a box of Cuban cigars lined with $200, $100 bills in return. That is $20,000, worth more than $46,000 in 2019. The information Rick was handing over in Rome wasn't as crucial or as deadly as the Soviet counterintelligence documents he'd handed over while working at the CIA headquarters in Langley, but what his new position lacked in quality, it made up for in quantity. An enormous amount of documents regarding operations all over Western Europe and the Mediterranean passed through the CIA's Rome station. And Rick saw them all. He had plenty to keep the KGB satisfied. So Rick's days dragged on into the fall of 1986. They were outwardly pleasant and comfortable, but dogged by hellish anxiety. He continued passing information through his cutout, but he knew he needed to speak to his handler, Vladimir Methuliev. 
Vlad was a senior member of the KGB counterintelligence directorate. He could explain the KGB's choice to call every agent Rick had named in the span of a year, and how exactly the KGB would protect Rick from that reckless choice. Rick was right to be anxious. As the summer came to a close, the hiatus on the disappearances, arrests, and deaths amongst Soviet double agents came to an end. Fall marked a new round of losses. The CIA finally gave up the hope that the problem could be explained by a series of careless errors or their last mole, Howard. It was time to get a task force on the leak. The FBI, too, started looking into the matter after the confirmed death of their two Soviet embassy recruits, Martinev and Matorin, but they knew nothing about the extent of the CIA's losses. The CIA didn't brief them or call them in to help the main investigation. This was another example of the CIA and FBI's recurring, resentful, and self-defeating inability to work together. The two investigations continued separately, both sniffing at the trail of Rick's betrayal. Even with their resources split, though, they were dangerous. Rick knew that they had to be on to him, or at least onto the fact that there was another mole in the CIA. The arrests and executions of Soviet double agents, one after another, were like a full-page ad shouting mole in bold letters. Rick should have handed the names over one at a time, he realized. He'd never expected the Soviets to take out every agent he'd identified in the span of a year. Anxiously waiting for his KGB handler to fly from Moscow to Rome in late October, Rick drank himself into as much of a stupor as he could and waited. In early October 1986, just as the CIA and FBI leak investigations were getting started, Rick caught a very lucky break. News of the infamous Iran-Contra affair broke in the U.S. The CIA was immediately thrown into a turmoil that would consume the agency for the rest of the decade. The Iran-Contra affair was a convoluted secret scheme run by President Reagan's administration. It began with illicit arms sales to Iran, which was the subject of an embargo at the time. The profits from those sales were quietly diverted to send more weapons to the Contra rebel army in Nicaragua, which, once again, the Reagan administration had been legally barred from doing. The CIA immediately went into emergency mode, throwing all its energy into managing the fallout. Two months after the scandal broke, Bill Casey, the head of the CIA, had a seizure. Claire George, the man in charge of investigating the CIA's mole, was indicted on nine counts. And with the agency in turmoil, the investigation into Rick Ames' subterfuge fell by the wayside. Rick, however, didn't know this. Of course, he heard all about the Iran-Contra affair from Rome, but he had no idea how it was affecting the investigation into his own subterfuge. So he went into his meeting with Vlad on October 20th, 1986, chomping at the bit in fear and frustration. And a few drinks deep, of course, as he always was for his meetings with the KGB. The black car picked him up at a bar. 
He wore a jacket and a baseball cap pulled low. He shoved his glasses in his pocket. The car drove him around Rome for 40 minutes to ensure there was no tail. Then, finally, Rick hunched down in the back seat and the car sped through the Soviet embassy gates. Coming up, we'll hear what exactly Vlad said to Rick and the convoluted Soviet intelligence scheme he promised would protect the KGB's prize spy. Now, back to the story. On October 20th, 1986, the last of the Soviet double agents that Rick Ames had betrayed in June 1985 were being rounded up and killed. An investigation into the CIA's mole had been opened, but the agency's top men were all too busy dealing with the Iran-Contra affair to make any progress. And Rick Ames was driving into the Soviet embassy to meet with Vlad, his KGB handler. Vlad explained to Rick the reason for all the double agents' arrests. It wasn't the KGB's choice. They would have chosen to leave at least some of the traitors in the field and use them as a tool to pass false information to the CIA. But Rick's intelligence had been passed all the way to the top of the Soviet hierarchy, to the General Secretary of the Soviet Union himself, Mikhail Gorbachev. Furious about the betrayals, Gorbachev ordered everyone on Rick's list to be killed immediately. Rick was shocked. As usual, he was unbothered by the deaths he had caused. What surprised him was that his name was known by the very highest echelons of Soviet leadership. He was valued by them. Vlad went on. The KGB was sincerely sorry about the danger they'd put Rick in by acting rashly on his intel. One of the ironies of counterintelligence is that acting on any information gathered puts the source of that information in danger. But Rick didn't need to panic. The KGB would stand by their man. Vlad promised they would start a series of operations designed to confound and mislead the inevitable CIA investigation into its leak. Sealed with vodka, Vlad's promise of protection was a sincere one. The KGB made good on its commitment to protect its most important asset. Beginning that December 1986 and continuing through the next five years, the KGB ran an incredibly sophisticated interlocking series of at least five counterintelligence operations designed to protect Rick Ames. In December 1986, they encouraged a CIA suspicion that it was U.S. Marine Guards at the Moscow Embassy who had betrayed counterintelligence secrets. The Marines occasionally had illicit romantic relationships with Soviet women. One of them, the CIA suspected, could have let a Soviet into the CIA's offices in the embassy. She could have planted a bug leading to the leaked information. The KGB craftily did everything they could to confirm these suspicions, using informal contacts in foreign cities to pass false information to Washington. And they even gave information directly to the CIA Soviet division. 
It wasn't uncommon for the CIA and KGB to exchange information directly, explains national security expert and Pulitzer winner Tim Weiner. Although, as this incident demonstrates, it was always crucial to take that direct communication with a heavy dose of suspicion. In this case, the CIA wasn't suspicious enough. The task force investigating the leak spent months on the Marine lead, and they almost bought it. The KGB also sent a missive directly to the CIA through one of their Berlin officers encouraging the idea that sloppy tradecraft and accidents had resulted in the capture of at least five of the missing double agents. Within the KGB, leadership disseminated the idea that the arrests had all resulted from information sold to the Soviets by Howard, the CIA's already discovered mole. Slowly, they hoped that explanation might leak out to the CIA. Yet another tactic to confuse and mislead? The KGB took the arrested double agents who were still alive and submitting to torture at KGB headquarters and forced them to call their CIA case officers or family members. They'd claimed that they weren't compromised and they hadn't been captured. They were in Moscow doing just fine. Finally, the KGB ordered one of their officers to turn Dangle, that is, as we discussed last week, to apparently volunteer his services to the CIA as a double agent, all while remaining loyal to the KGB. The Dangle told the CIA that there had been a security breach at their Warrenton, Virginia switchboard leading to the interception of top-secret messages from CIA headquarters. All these deceptions kept the CIA task force on the leak busy. Composed of just one part-time and two full-time investigators, the task force was no match for the KGB's wily games. And as the years went on, and the task force members were loaded with other duties and investigations, the hunt for the most dramatic deadly leak in the CIA's history flailed, going nowhere. Bill Casey, after his December 1986 seizure and the brain cancer diagnosis that followed, was replaced as head of the CIA by William Webster. And while Casey had known the extent of the CIA's leaks and losses in 1985 and 86, Webster was never fully briefed on the issue. Other, more recent issues took precedence when he assumed the office. He served as the head of the CIA from 1987 to 1991, and all he ever knew was that a few years back, a few operations had been compromised and a few agents lost. He never knew that an entire generation of prized Soviet double agents had been lost all at once. He never knew that the overworked, understaffed task force investigating the leak was going nowhere. In fact, he was only vaguely aware of the task force's existence. The Soviet trickery protecting Rick was more than aided by this mess of miscommunication within the CIA. By October 1988, the task force had more or less collapsed. It had gotten nowhere and discovered nothing. Rick, dozing away his days at the overstaffed, boozy Rome station, was safe. And thanks to the KGB, he felt cared for and appreciated, too. 
his life was good. He was handing over the names of agents and the details of operations at regular dinners with his cutout. But now, the KGB was handling the agents he betrayed with its habitual, subtle manipulation, unhindered by kill orders from USSR leadership. Much of the information Rick handed them, they didn't use at all because it was too risky. It led directly back to Rick. But they still appreciated it. And they paid for it. Masses of Soviet money were accumulating in Rick's bank accounts, including two Swiss accounts, one in his name and one in the name of his wife's mother. He'd fly to Zurich on the weekends occasionally to make cash deposits. But those trips didn't stand out to his colleagues at the CIA. He regularly flew all over Europe with his wife, Maria Rosario, for little trips or weekend getaways, making full, extravagant, and public use of the funds the Soviets showered on him. He had to explain the money somehow, of course. His salary was $60,000 a year, a good wage, especially in the 80s, but nothing near enough to support his luxurious lifestyle, gallivanting around Europe in Italian suits. To his colleagues, he implied his wife's family was extremely wealthy. To his Swiss bankers, he claimed he was liquidating some of his wife's parents' assets. And to his wife, he explained that he was working for an old friend from college, managing European investments. Keep it hush-hush, though, he cautioned her. This was a side gig that wasn't exactly forbidden by his job with the CIA, but not exactly comme faux either. He had to keep all his lies from converging. He wasn't exactly a meticulous spy, but he knew if the wrong person caught on to the discrepancies between all his stories, the Tower of Lies would come tumbling down and he'd fall right along with them. After nearly three years of this plush lifestyle in Rome, and the bumbling mess of the CIA's first investigation into their leak, Rick prepared to head home to Washington. He parted from his cutout with a document that itemized his assignment once he was back in Washington. The document explained how Rick would communicate with the KGB in Washington. There'd be no cutout this time, just dead drops in signal sites. Rick would drop off a packet of information at a specified site. Then, he'd alert his counterpart using an agreed-upon signal. In Rick's case, it would be a chalk mark on a mailbox. A KGB officer would be on the lookout for that mark. Once he saw it, he'd visit the dead drop site, pick up his materials, and leave money for Rick in its place. This system was often used by the KGB because it was easier to orchestrate than in-person meetings or live drops. Rick would supplement the dead drop system by flying to Europe or South America a few times a year to rendezvous with his handler. The last note in the parting letter was a detailed account of the money Rick had been paid so far. The rest of the money set aside for him in Moscow and the salary he was being paid yearly. It said, quote, 
All in all, you have been appropriated $2,705,000. Since December 1986, your salary is $300,000. All in all, we have delivered to you $1,881,811.51. Rick loved this document. He'd served the KGB well, and they expressed that to him lavishly. He'd keep the letter, carry it back to Washington, and stash it casually in his house, where he could pull it out and remember his real comrades at any time. Careless spycraft, as usual. The document should have been destroyed. If anyone found it, his entire game was up. But for all the information Rick passed the KGB... For all the years he went undetected as a prolific, deadly double agent, he was always careless. Rick's supervisor gave him dismal reports throughout his tenure in Rome. He'd done more or less nothing for the CIA and shown little initiative or aptitude. But in typical CIA fashion, the solution for a third-rate agency man seemed to be burying him somewhere in headquarters. Rick was stuck on Washington's check desk, an unremarkable post that didn't keep him particularly busy. Rick didn't like this job. He had access to little information that was of interest to the KGB, but his bids for promotion were summarily rejected. So he focused on his personal life he kept spending with the reckless abandon he'd cultivated in Rome, buying an expensive home in a ritzy suburb with straight cash, plunking down on a jaguar, and hiring a maid. But his predicament didn't last long. A year later, at the end of 1990, he was right back in the middle of the game. He was transferred into the counterintelligence center as part of the analysis team, an inexplicable move, considering that at this point he was a definitively useless employee. He was ranked third from the bottom out of 200 officers in his cohort. But then again, each one of Rick's promotions and reassignments can only be explained by the CIA's penchant to move rather than fire any officer who was doing poor work. Plus, the counterintelligence center needed someone with knowledge and understanding of the KGB. They were looking for help reading and analyzing reports on everything the KGB was doing and what the CIA was doing in response. That was Rick, who'd worked the Soviets for years, even if the work he'd done during that time was thoroughly terrible. The transfer meant that Rick had useful intel for the KGB once again. His dead drops started filling with documents, and he regularly flew to Europe to check in with his handler. But the CIA finally had some useful intel on Rick as well. Diana Worthen, a CIA officer and acquaintance of the Ameses, visited the palatial new Ames residence in November 1989. She was astonished by the house, the maid, the luxurious furnishings. This was not how the Ameses had been living before they left for Rome. Where was this money coming from? Worthen thought it over. 
She knew about the disaster that had struck the Soviet division a few years back. She knew Rick would have known the names that were betrayed. She was far from confident in her speculation, but she was suspicious. And she took those suspicions to Dan Payne, the part-time investigator on the languishing task force looking into the CIA's mole. Payne's first response to Warthen's tip was a cursory check into Rick's finances. The U.S. Customs Service and Treasury Department earmarks cash transactions above $10,000 in an effort to track money laundering. And Payne's inquiry turned up several of these large transactions tied to Rick's accounts. Payne was also unable to find a mortgage record on Rick's house, so it had been paid in cash. But at the CIA, enormous wealth was common. The agency drew its men from Ivy League royalty and the moneyed Northeast elite. Payne wasn't particularly alarmed by the results he'd pulled up on Ames. Perhaps a relative had died. Perhaps Maria Rosario's Colombian family was swimming in drug money. It would be a year before Payne bothered to follow up on his initial inquiry. When he did follow up in December 1990, he decided this tip actually was worth acting on, especially since Rick was now working once again in the counterintelligence center. Payne drafted a memo to Rick Riordan, an investigator in the CIA's Office of Security. He recorded Warthen's tip on the Ames's extravagant spending. He detailed Rick's large cash transactions. He noted that Rick's new position at the counterintelligence center gave him access to exactly the secrets a KGB mole should be shielded from. Riordan immediately opened an official investigation into Rick Ames. Once the investigation was launched in December 1990, it was only a matter of time, or so one would think. All the information was there. The right man was flagged, but again, somehow, it fell flat. Rick was never arrested, fired, or even thoroughly questioned. He didn't even know he had ever been the subject of direct suspicion. Paul Redmond, Rick's successor and now Rick's boss, as head of the Soviet counterintelligence division, was convinced the investigators weren't taking the matter seriously. In April 1991, after years of watching the task force flounder, Redmond went to the FBI. If the problem was a double agent, the CIA needed the FBI to help catch him, or at least, in the end, to make the arrest. The FBI formed a team called Play Actor. The CIA transformed its three-person task force into a larger team called Skylight, and the two teams finally started to work together. When we get back, we'll hear about the operation that finally captured Rick Ames, the trial that followed, and the effect Rick's case had on some very big questions about the CIA. Now back to the story. In April 1991, the FBI and CIA finally joined forces to find the mole that had betrayed every Soviet CIA double agent five years earlier. The new task forces, called Play Actor and Skylight, knew they were looking for a human mole, not a technological breach, 
and they had a good idea of where that mole might be hiding. With the FBI in the picture, what had been a confused slog of a search through old papers and false leads finally became a criminal investigation. The first order of business was to put together a list of suspects who had access to the compromised information. It was not a short list, but 29 of the 200 possible suspects stood out to investigators. Rick Ames was one of them. In October 1991, they started interviewing the suspects. On November 12th, they got to Rick. He wasn't alarmed by it. He thought it was routine, part of the same ineffective investigation that had failed to spot him since 1985. But this time was different. The CIA ordered a full computer scan of Rick's records after his interview. He was the only interview subject they flagged for that treatment. The evidence was still coming together, but the agency knew Rick was their man. In the new year, 1992, Rick was transferred out of the counterintelligence center to the narcotics center, where he'd work with information of no interest to the Soviets whatsoever. While the transfer wasn't made at the request of the investigators, it was certainly in their favor. Despite their early suspicions about Rick Ames, it wasn't until September 1992 that the investigation found the definitive proof they needed. It was the CIA half of the investigation, Skylight, that made the break. But they couldn't have made it without the help of the FBI, because half the information that led to it was collecting dust at the FBI's headquarters. The CIA knew that Rick, beginning in October 1985, had started depositing large sums of cash into his checking accounts. The FBI knew that on dates perfectly corresponding with his cash deposits, he'd been meeting with Sergei Chuvakin, his first Soviet cutout. Rick had made a careless mistake by depositing the cash Chuvakin passed him right after their meetings. He could have waited a few weeks, or better yet, deposited small sums over the course of a few weeks to decrease suspicion. But careless was Rick's modus operandi, and it had worked for him for the past seven years just fine. It would work for another few months, too. The Skylight and play actor teams left their man in place, untouched, as they drafted their final report. Then, in May 1993, the investigation was handed over in full to the FBI. It was time to move in for the kill. The FBI called the operation Night Mover. Wiretaps went into Rick Ames' phones. Concealed microphones were placed in his home. A tracking device was attached to his Jaguar, and he became the subject of around-the-clock surveillance. The Super G's, the FBI's elite team of surveillance specialists, were put on the case. The goal of Night Mover was ultimately to arrest Rick before his suspicions were aroused and the KGB could spirit him away to the USSR. But first the task force had to gather enough evidence to ensure Rick was convicted in a court of law. That meant more than suspicious financial records. They needed proof beyond a reasonable doubt that he was a double agent in contact with the KGB. By the end of September 1993, 
they were still missing the hard proof that Rick had attended a meeting with the KGB, or at least that he'd left information at a dead drop. Then, on October 8th, Rick and Maria Rosario left town for a wedding. This was the opportunity the night mover operation needed to get into the Ames's house, sweep through, grab information off Rick's computer, and copy any documents they could find. There were a few scraps of paper with interesting tidbits. The number of the Russian residential compounds in Vienna, for instance, was tucked into one of Rick's pockets, left over from years before. But it was the computer that brought Rick's house of cards tumbling down. He'd recorded his dead drop in signal sites. He'd recorded his financial transactions with the KGB meticulously for once in his life. A printer ribbon revealed that a trip to Caracas in October 1992, which had already aroused the suspicions of the investigators, had been one of many trips to see his handler. There was also a letter that named his colleagues at the MBRF. The MBRF was the Russian Federal Ministry for Security, successor to the KGB's counterintelligence service. And the same letter assured his correspondent that Maria Rosario was very aware of his work. She had found out about Rick's work for the KGB in 1992, two years earlier. She'd kept silent. That made her an accomplice. The FBI could leverage leniency for her as a tactic to get Rick to talk. The FBI had what they needed. They were ready to make their move. But they wanted that one extra piece of proof, a sighting of him at a dead drop. So they waited and waited and waited until February 1994. Rick was scheduled for a work trip to Moscow with the CIA. The agency had delayed it as long as they could, but they couldn't postpone it longer without arousing suspicion. What if Rick was already silently noting the FBI tales that followed him day in and day out? What if his suspicions were aroused? He was a trained spy, after all. He was supposed to notice these things. True to form, he hadn't noticed a thing. But the investigators couldn't be sure. Plus, even if Rick hadn't noticed, the Soviets might have. They might spirit him away from his Moscow meetings and he'd get off scot-free. They couldn't have that. Not now that they knew their man. On February 21st, 1994, the FBI seized Rick. Finally, nine years after his first betrayal, eight years after the first investigation into the leak, five years after the first inquiry into Rick specifically, and three years after the final successful investigation was launched, Rick Ames' mission for the KGB was up. In Rick's closet, the document he'd received when he left Rome five years earlier sat in an unlocked box. The investigators found it as they cleaned out his house. It was absurd that he'd kept it. It detailed the amount of money he'd received from the KGB, the place he had waiting for him in the USSR if he ever needed to escape, and instructions for his KGB assignment in Washington. 
but it had been important to Rick. It was a sign of the attention, financial and otherwise, the KGB was happy to shower on him. But now, it was perfect evidence against him. On April 28, 1994, Rick and Maria Rosario both pled guilty to charges of conspiracy to commit espionage and conspiracy to evade taxes. Rick made a full confession in an attempt to lighten his wife's sentence, but also, perhaps, because he was proud of the work he'd done. It was far better than anything he'd ever done for the CIA. On October 21st, 1994, Maria Rosario was sentenced to 63 months in prison. Rick was given a life sentence without possibility of parole. Before Rick was carted off to prison, though, he threw a last arrow at the heart of the CIA, his court statement after he announced his guilty plea. The statement was a confession. It was an explanation of how long he had managed to conceal his espionage from his wife, seven years, and of how little she knew even after that in an attempt to protect her. But it was also an indictment of the CIA. He said, quote, I had come to believe that the espionage business as carried out by the CIA and a few other American agencies, was and is a self-serving sham, carried out by careerist bureaucrats who have managed to deceive several generations of American policymakers and the public about both the necessity and the value of their work. The information our vast espionage network acquires at considerable human and ethical costs is generally insignificant or irrelevant to our policymakers' needs." End quote. It went on like that, vehement, clear, and sounding out an argument that had been rumbling on the lips of citizens and congressmen alike, especially after the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991. What was the point of the CIA now? Was it time to do away with the institution? It had been created to fight communism, fair enough, said the more generous debaters, while the more critical ones wondered how well they'd done even that, and whether they'd abandon American ideals along the way. Rick Ames' statement and interviews he gave from jail helped push this debate out into the open. It threatened the very existence of the agency Rick was raised in, He'd betrayed the CIA twice over. Jim Woolsey, the CIA director at the time of Rick's arrest, took what was perhaps his only possible course of action. He promised reform. He acknowledged the criticisms of the agency and Rick's role in catalyzing them. He acknowledged the validity of complaints about the CIA's secrecy, arrogance, and denial. Ultimately, He'd resign at the end of 1994, unable to take the heat thrown at him in the wake of the PR disaster that was Aldrich Ames. Congress didn't let it go at that, though. While it didn't eliminate the CIA completely, the Intelligence Authorization Act of 1995 stipulated that the agency inform the FBI immediately when it suspected any loss of classified information. 
The FBI was also given the right to access any CIA file it wanted to review. The CIA's days of carte blanche to operate secretly without accountability and oversight were over. Their incompetent mishandling of Rick Ames' betrayal assured that. And Rick's final effort to discredit them did more than a little to drive the stake in. Rick Ames crashed and burned in the end, with the spectacular chaos that characterized his entire career as a spy. But he brought down his agency with him, made a name for himself as the most deadly, best-paid mole in the CIA's history, and got his face plastered across every major newspaper of the 1990s. Sometimes the unlikeliest of candidates make the deadliest of spies. And their actions played out amidst the secrecy and intrigue of national and international intelligence agencies can have surprising as well as predictable effects. Rick Ames brought down an entire stable of Soviet double agents working in the CIA. Many of them lost their lives. But he brought down the CIA itself, too, or at least a critical era in its history. An era of utter independence, unchecked power, and arrogant inability to self-criticize. Thank you for listening to Espionage. We'll be back Friday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Espionage as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll be back next week with another deep dive into the world of clandestine operation. Espionage was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Espionage is written by Nora Battelle. I'm Carter Roy. <laughs>